Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians today, chapter 2. If you are uh, just visiting with us today, you are catching us near the beginning of a study through this letter. We've spent the last two weeks looking at the opening of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And uh, in the ancient world, you may be aware that most letters began with a greeting and then some sort of a prayer. Only a prayer of thanksgiving for what God had done, uh, or a prayer of petition for what the Lord may do. This was uh, true of the pagan letters as well. They would begin their letters with uh, prayers to the gods, lowercase g, and Paul uh, does the same. But today into chapter 2, we're getting beyond that opening prayer of thanksgiving and into the body of what Paul really wanted to tell the Thessalonians. He's set it up already. The, the prayer we've already studied is not an afterthought. It's important and and integral to the argument of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, but Paul really is getting into the body of his letter today, and he begins by recounting the, the message and uh, the account of his time and his ministry among the Thessalonian church. And we'll see that today. The focus is on the ministry that Paul had among them. And so you will see him recounting the way that he came in and the things that he did uh, and calling them to witness. You'll notice several times over he'll call them to say, you know, or you remember, or you are witnesses. And in fact, he calls God as a witness as well on the ministry that he had. We're going to see that today in 1 Thessalonians as we read and study uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Before we read this word, please join me in prayer as we seek God's blessing on our study. Gracious Lord, uh, this is your word. We are your people. We thank you for your apostle who wrote these words and uh, as a gift to your church to lead us to yourself and to show us the way that we ought to walk. Father, we pray that we may not come away only learning something about Paul, but we would much learn much more about you. By the grace of your gospel and your son and your Holy Spirit, working in our lives, oh Lord, we pray that you would do a work in us, that that would be true, that we would trust in you and know you, and be more and more the people who love you, because of your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. 
we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may add a blessing as we study it together today. In, uh, in commenting on this passage, G.K. Beale begins with a pretty provocative statement. Here's what he says. He says that ironically, one of the greatest obstacles to the spread of the gospel is the church itself. He says one of the greatest obstacles to the spread of the gospel is the church itself. But he goes on to explain. He says it's not hard to recall Christian leaders from the past 20 years who've been so immoral and greedy that even the world itself has been repulsed. Those words... G.K. Beale's words are themselves just about 20 years old as well. And in the time since they were written, the situation probably hasn't gotten much better. So I bet most of you, without saying their names out loud, can probably think of some well-known Christian leader whose very well-known Christian ministry ended up in a very well-known Christian debacle, some, uh, some sort of scandal that spread throughout the headlines. You've seen them. You know the authors and the bloggers and those, those TV preachers who've done more damage to the cause of Christ through their public sin than they ever did good by their teaching and their leading. It is often an unavoidable truth that at least in the eyes of the world, the plausibility of the message of the gospel is tied to the life and to the ministry of the person who's proclaiming it. Of course, it would be uh, nice and, and comfortable, perhaps, to imagine that the crash-and-burn sort of style of ministry was, was only relegated to what we now know as the, quote, celebrity pastor. But that's not true either. It's not just the authors and the bloggers and the TV preachers. And so probably, I would imagine that, uh, in addition, a, a few of you can think of some personal spiritual mentor somebody closer to you, somebody that you actually knew, maybe a pastor or an elder, or someone who shared with you the faith at the first, uh, and they also had some public downfall, and their sin had a devastating effect on your life. You scale that model down even further, and it affects your own ministry. Jesus said that a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. And that was true for Jesus for different reasons than it might be true for you, but it is true for you. Don't you often find that the Christian witness, that the Christian ministry sometimes feels the hardest among the people who know you the best? Those who still remember what you were like before Christ got a hold of you. Those who still know you well enough to see those glaring inconsistencies between your proclamation and your practice. Our passage today is all about gospel ministry. You see it in the repetition of of the language, verse 2. Verse 2, Paul says, we declared to you the gospel of God. 
You see it over in verse 8. He says, we shared with you the gospel of God. You see it in verse 9. He says, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. This passage is about gospel ministry. Specifically, it is about the gospel ministry of Paul, the apostle, among the Thessalonian church. But this passage is more than just about Paul's gospel ministry. It's also about ours. Paul has already praised the Lord because of the fact that the Thessalonians had become examples to the churches around Macedonia and Achaia by the way that the word of the Lord had gone out. He's already talked about the way that they had become imitators of himself and of the Lord. And so as Paul is now transitioning to talk about his ministry, he's giving us another example to imitate. Last week, if you were with us, you, you know that we, we examined in chapter 1 what I was calling the genuine Christian church. And today we're going to consider genuine gospel ministry. The way that gospel ministry ought to show up in our church. The way it ought to show up in our families. The way that it ought to show up perhaps in our personal evangelism as well. A genuine gospel ministry. Paul defines it for us in pretty robust terms. He lets us know, and, and the breakdown is about every four verses, so it's easy to follow. But Paul lets us know where gospel ministry starts, and he lets us know how it's shaped, and he lets us know what it's seeking. It's our outline today, where gospel ministry starts, how gospel ministry is shaped, and what gospel ministry seeks. Now, as we open into the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, you may pick up on something. You may sense something that sounds like a defensive tone. It might sound like, like Paul is answering some unspoken accusation about his ministry in Thessalonica. Paul sometimes had to do that in his letters. It makes you think of the letter of 2 Corinthians, which is almost all an extended defense of Paul's apostolic ministry. He sometimes had to do that because as Paul went about preaching Christ, he inevitably encountered opposition. He encountered skepticism about this message that he was preaching. And the people who were opposing him and the skeptics, well, they made all manner of accusations about what they thought Paul was really up to with this ministry of his. And as you go through this passage, you can almost hear the accusations that people were making about Paul, the things that he had to defend against, especially in these first four verses. He seems to be responding to an accusation that said that his ministry was something he had cooked up just to hide some ulterior motive, some secret, hidden, nefarious agenda. Notice the negative in verse 3. Paul says that for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He's telling us where gospel ministry starts. At least he's telling us where it ought not to start. It does not spring from deceptive tactics. Gospel ministry can't just be some intentional ruse to, to win uh, converts just for the sake of winning converts. As a sort of parallel example from another area of life, think about all the rhetoric that gets, rhetoric that gets lobbed back and forth and, and tossed between the crowd who is pro-abortion and the crowd that is anti-abortion. Think about the charges that the pro-abortion crowd makes about the anti-abortion. 
abortion crowd. They say things like, you're just trying to control women's bodies. They say things like, you don't trust women to make their own decisions. They say, evangelicals only care about babies until they're born. In other words, they're saying that there's a hidden agenda. We, on one side, will say that the unborn are, are made in God's image, that they have value and dignity and inherent worth as human beings. They would say, well, no, you just want control. There's some ulterior motive here. It seems to be the same kind of accusation being made against Paul, not about abortion, but about a hidden agenda. And so Paul talks about the, the sufferings that they endured, he and Silas and Timothy, when they were in Philippi just before they came to Thessalonica. Acts chapter 16 reminds us that they were beaten, stripped and beaten and thrown into prison, not because they desecrated a temple or stole from a street merchant. Right? They were beaten and thrown into prison because Paul had delivered a slave girl from demonic oppression. That was a problem. Because this slave girl, by her demonic oppression, used to tell fortunes for money. She made stacks of bills for her slave owners. And now, because Paul had preached the gospel of God, because he had delivered her from this demonic spirit, well, the town mobs drag him and Silas before the magistrate, and they say in Acts chapter 16, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. In other words, these people are dangerous. These people are deceptive. They may look like they're just preachers of this new religion, but really they want to advance their own agenda. Now, that's not what gospel ministry ought to be about. So verse 4, Paul says, no, we didn't come with an attempt to deceive, but, verse 4, he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. There's the core of the matter. Gospel ministry can't begin. It should never begin with a desire to please man either by what we say or by what we refuse to say. It cannot arise from an attempt merely to win converts. Gospel ministry should never be a tool just to gain a following. Rather, gospel ministry must begin with the desire to do what is pleasing to the Lord. No other agenda will produce true gospel ministry. No other motivation will sustain our evangelism when our evangelism inevitably meets with its own opposition. Paul says he came from Philippi to Thessalonica with boldness in the Lord, not boldness in some new slick sales pitch he's learned. Right? Not some psychological trick that if he applies it in just the right way, with just the right leverage, with just the right mood lighting happening behind, it's guaranteed to make converts 100% of the time. That's not what he's confident about. And Paul says, though, he came with integrity in his gospel ministry because he came with a desire to please the Lord first. Now, your gospel ministry, wherever the Lord calls you, will look different than the Apostle Paul's. But this is also where your gospel ministry has to start as well. Last week, for those who were here, I asked you a question, and maybe it made you squirm a little bit. 
The question that I asked you was who it was who last heard the gospel from your lips. And I know that that question makes us feel uncomfortable. There's an old saying that if you want to make a pastor feel guilty, ask that pastor about his prayer life. The same is probably true, not just for pastors, but for most Christians about evangelism. Right, when we start talking about it, it's a sort of thing that, uh, that shows up in, in our Christian lives that we always feel a little guilty about, the kind of thing that we feel like we're never measuring up to and the kind of thing we're never doing enough of. And so when somebody asks us how we've been sharing the gospel, we get that guilty twinge down our spine. We might even get the temptation to add the wrong kind of motivation to our gospel ministry. What's the wrong kind of motivation for gospel ministry? You might not say it out loud, but it, it comes in a voice that says something like, if I'm not sharing the gospel with my neighbors, I'm probably not a good Christian. I'm certainly not as good of a Christian as that other one. It shows up in a voice that says something like, I need to tell ten people about Jesus by the end of the week or I won't measure up. The wrong kind of motivation for evangelism says, you know, the next time my pastor asks that uncomfortable question, I'd better have a name to report because he's checking on me. Quite frankly, if that's where our evangelism begins, the world is going to sniff it out. Don't you ever get the sense that some unbelievers are skeptical of the gospel because they suspect that Christians approach evangelism the same way they suspect we approach abortion? With some hidden agenda behind what we're really saying on the outside, don't you ever get the sense that some unbelievers think that Christians only care about unbelievers until they're converted? I don't think it's true any more than you do, but if our evangelism starts with a desire to please men with what we're saying, don't you think they have a right to be suspicious? Now, Paul is telling us that the only place that real gospel ministry starts is with a desire to please the Lord. When it comes right down to it, who cares what your pastor thinks? Who cares if you're doing the same thing that that other person at the end of the row sitting next to you is doing? The question is, do you believe that the Lord is listening? Do you know that he's the one who tests not just your words, not just your actions, but your heart? What we need at the beginning, at the start of our gospel ministry, wherever the Lord sends us, whoever he connects us to, whatever kinds of conversations we have, whether we expect them or they come sort of unexpectedly, what we need at the beginning of all of that is faith. Faith enough to know that the Lord actually doesn't evaluate our evangelism by how many converts we count. Faith enough to know that he doesn't care how many people agree with us. And he doesn't care if we look foolish in the eyes of the world. Well, the Lord counts faithfulness by the way that we delight in delighting him. He measures ministry success by what is pleasing to God rather than what is pleasing to men. Even if what is pleasing to men is just to please ourselves. 
so that we can feel okay with what we're doing in our gospel ministry. Well, that's where gospel ministry starts, with a desire to please the Lord. Next, Paul shows us how gospel ministry is shaped. Verse 5, you notice, begins with another negative. It's a triple negative this time. Paul says, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. In a word, Paul's saying that his ministry was not characterized by what he could gain from the people that he ministered to. No flattery, no greed, no seeking for glory. Most of us have encountered a flatterer before. They are those people who somehow manage to say more nice things about you than you've ever even imagined, dare, believe about yourself. Right? Flattery is this tactic of telling other people what you think they like to hear about themselves, but you do it for yourself. You do it to disarm them. You do it to put them at ease. You do it so that they will treat you the way that you want to be treated. That's why Hank Ketchum said that flattery is like chewing gum. You can enjoy it, he says, but don't swallow it. Flattery is selfish speech. Masquerades is a compliment. And Paul is saying that that kind of approach has no place in gospel ministry. Not his, not yours. Neither does the drive to line your pockets through gospel ministry have a place. So Paul says we didn't come for, with a pretext for greed. Maybe some of your translations say something like a mask to cover up. The King James has a cloak of covetousness. That is, presenting one thing while really having that other ulterior motive. This is perhaps the most recognizable and ridiculed kind of false uh, gospel ministry in the world today. The most extreme examples, we can think of those multi-billionaire pastors flying around the world in their private jets, but we can also think of those prosperity preachers. The ones in South America and in Africa, the ones that are telling their very, very poor congregations that if they just give a little bit more to the ministry of the church, well, God will give them all manner of financial abundance. The problem is the only person in those churches with any abundance is the man with the sharp suit up front telling them that they need to give their last pennies. And you've seen it. And so had Paul. Actually, it's, it's a problem older than the invention of the televangelist. You can think back to the, uh, the ministry of the apostles in the Old Testament, or the prophets in the Old Testament, the way that the Lord was already warning his people about the shepherds who devoured the sheep rather than feeding them. So Paul says no flattery. Paul says no greed, and also no seeking the glory of men. No puffing yourself up with this, this feeling of superiority over the people in the pews or the green chairs, I suppose. Let's be honest, there is a certain rush that comes with knowing that you've got an influence over other people, isn't there? Some of you have been in that situation. There's a sense of self-importance that creeps in when you know that the words that you say are being written down by all the people taking notes in the sermon. Everybody just put their pencils down, didn't they? 
there can be a slick, subtle temptation for many people in ministry to make ministry about leaving a lasting personal impression. And Paul says that is not what ministry is meant for. That's not how gospel ministry ought to be shaped. And you notice he even goes further. Paul says he didn't even make gospel ministry about using the legitimate authority that he could have claimed as an apostle. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. In fact, Paul could have made demands. He was an apostle of Christ. He was one of these original ones who had seen the risen Lord, who had been sent out. He is writing scripture as he's writing this letter. He could have made all kinds of moral demands. He could have made financial demands. He could have told them, you know, I am worthy of your hire. That's what he tells Timothy later, that a workman is worthy of his hire. He could have used that. He could have flexed his apostolic muscle and made his weight felt in Thessalonica. He's going to tell them later that they ought to honor those who minister among them. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul tells them to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and you ought to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Paul is not against a church giving honor to the men who serve among them. Then he's not denying that the Lord has put men in places of church authority, but by his example, he's saying that true gospel ministry is never an excuse to take advantage of the sheep just for what they can give you. Actually, true gospel ministry ought to take precisely the opposite approach. How should it be shaped? If it's not flattery or greed or seeking for glory, how should gospel ministry be shaped? Well, it should be shaped by selfless service driven by love. Look at verse 7. He says, no, but we were gentle among you. Your text might say, uh, infants. You can take or leave the footnote in the ESV. The, the difference in the Greek is a single letter, and it doesn't much make a difference because the next image that he gives is crystal clear. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. It might be a stretch to imagine your elders and your deacons as nursing mothers, but the, the image is immediately recognizable. We've all seen these examples of, of maternal love. Right? We've all witnessed the early years of parenting where the name of the game is consistent investment without return. Right? You have those, those early changes and those late night feedings. You have that constant care and, and keeping up with your children and cleaning. And for what? First few months, you might get a smile, maybe but it doesn't matter. The nursing mother might at times be exhausted, and she probably is, and she might be exasperated and overwhelmed with the whole thing, and she probably is, so husbands and, and friends give them a little bit of help. They might be exhausted and exasperated and overwhelmed, but they just keep on giving. Why? Because they love their children. And so they're not concerned with answering the question of what's in it for me. Verse 8, Paul says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. The word translated very dear is agapetos, beloved. We shared with you the gospel. We didn't come for what we could gain. 
we loved you with the gospel, he's saying. Selfless service driven by love. It's not an opportunity for gain or flattery or making ourselves feel important. Well, here's a challenge for all of our elders and all of our deacons and those men who serve faithfully at Redeemer Church to make this maternal model your model for ministry. It's a challenge for all the Sunday school teachers and the nursery workers and the Bible study leaders and the people who sit up and tear down to give of themselves out of love for the sheep that the Lord has gathered. For all of us on the receiving end of that selfless service, it ought to be a reminder to thank the Lord for the servants that God gathers and the, the givers that he puts together within his church. Now, gospel ministry starts with a desire to please the Lord. It is shaped by selfless service, driven by love. Lastly, Paul tells us what gospel ministry is seeking. Now, verse 10, Paul calls on the Thessalonians to witness, to bear testimony, the kind of ministry that he's had among them. By now, this is an extension of what we've already seen, so the adjectives that he uses in verse 10 almost explain themselves as you go along. You don't need my help to, uh, to understand verses, uh, verse 11, what he's saying there. He's already told us they didn't preach the gospel for deception. They didn't seek what they could gain. They had no interest in measuring their self-worth by spiritual influence. Instead, he says, verse 10, you are witnesses. God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. They were upright. They had integrity. It is the positive counterpart to all these negative examples of what ministry ought not to look like that he's already given us. And if you've made it this far, you can piece those things together for yourself maybe later. What we're interested in in these last four verses is what Paul is driving at. What's the point of it all? All this selfless ministry for people he had practically just met. What could move him to do those things? What on earth could he be after that he would love the Thessalonians enough to put his life on the line to share the gospel with them? And the answer is, Paul did that because that's what fathers are supposed to do. Verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul doesn't mind mixing a few metaphors. So right after he's told us that they were like mothers, he says they were also like fathers. Paul and his companions, he's saying, acted in Thessalonica like the head of an ancient household. Culture may have changed a little bit, but in those ancient days, it was the primary responsibility that fell to the father to see that the children were educated and they were trained and they were socialized and they were prepared for life in the larger community. That was the father's job. That was his task and his role. And in fact, in those days, it was the father's legacy that that would happen. The father's legacy was, uh, was having well-adjusted children who carried on the values and the reputation of the family name. And to have children like that launched into the world, it was counted worth whatever price the head of the household had to pay. 
Matthew Henry said, he who has a family to care for should not love his bed too much in the morning. That's what Paul's talking about here. So he talks about his labor and about his toil. We work day and night, he says, so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. Actually, it picks up on that same idea earlier. We could have made demands. There's a shared root there. We could have laid burdens on you. No, 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 we, we didn't do that. We worked so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. We wanted to provide for you rather than you thinking that you had to provide for us. Why? Because it's what a father does. He says, you remember our exhortation, our encouragement, the charge that we laid on you to walk worthy of the Lord. Sometimes we had to come alongside and be patient with you. Sometimes you needed a firmer hand. Sometimes we needed to point you in the right direction. But it was always moving in the same trajectory. To teach their spiritual children how to show the glory of God to the watching world, to grow them in spiritual maturity. That's what Paul was seeking in his ministry. Christian maturity that declares the glory of God. He did this, all this labor, all that work. He did it because he cared about these former idolaters more than just making converts for converts' sake. He wasn't just out to win an evangelistic argument. He was out to make lifelong disciples to display the glory of God's salvation to the world. That was the first priority. That was the legacy they were striving for, that the glory of God would be seen in their spiritual children. Now here is a direct word of application for you actual, natural mothers and fathers in the congregation. Here's a word of priority for your families. What is the spiritual legacy that you are laboring to pass on to your natural children? You have lots of priorities for your kids, I'm sure. They may be very young now, but you've already got your ideals planned out for them. You've got your dreams and your hopes for their future. You want them to get an education. You want them to get a career. You want them maybe to get a spouse and to have children of their own, to be well-adjusted, productive members of society. You have any number of plans and and aspirations and ever-evolving five-year rotating priorities for your children as they grow into the next stage of life. But the question is, fathers and mothers, how are you prioritizing the ministry of the gospel inside your home? Is that what you're laboring day and night to see happen in your children? Paul says his ministry was aimed at producing Christian maturity to display God's glory. Is that what you're laboring for? Is that what you're spending yourself to see? In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul uses another family metaphor. He says, my little children for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. They've already been united to him. He wants to see Christ formed in them. Is that what you're laboring for, parents? To see Christ formed in your children. Is that what you're laboring for, husbands and wives? To see Christ formed in your marriage. Is that what you're laboring for, to see Christ formed in that adult child who's already grown and left the family and now they're walking more closely with the world than they were with the Lord? 
Dear Christian, here is the legacy that all of our gospel ministry ought to be seeking. Ministry in the church and ministry in the home and ministry in our personal evangelism, we should be seeking to cultivate Christian maturity that displays the glory of God to the world. Now, almost ten after, most of you know me. Most of you know my preaching, and you know that by about this time, I ought to be trying to find a way to land this thing. You know how it goes. We have covered the passage. I have gotten my three points. I should be finding some way to summarize the takeaways and some way to encourage you to put it into practice. And that is exactly what I had planned to do at this point until I realized that we can't stop where we are. Until I was going through everything that I had prepared and, and thinking, how do I close it all? What do we say? Where do we go? How do we get from the sermon to the table? And realize that we can't stop where we are now. Not because we haven't learned enough about Christian ministry, but because so far we have learned nothing about the gospel. Did you notice that? I didn't. I didn't until I was looking over it, but now I do. And notice that it's true that if we leave this passage where we are right now, we have essentially produced what we could call the law of gospel ministry. A three-part program for you to get your act together. Step one, stop caring what other people think about your evangelism. Step two, serve one another without seeking to serve yourselves. Step three, strive for Christian maturity, not just in yourself, but also in the people around you. It's ironic, perhaps. I started with that quote from G.K. Beale about the church being the obstacle to the spread of the gospel, and then I preached about sharing the gospel in a way that makes it seem like some Herculean effort that none of us will ever live up to. Nothing like a good guilt trip on a Sunday morning to really feel like a Presbyterian, I suppose. And if we stop here, I bet that better than half the congregation is going to walk away going, well, if that is what I'm supposed to do, I should just give up. And I wouldn't blame you. If we stopped at comparing our pitiful attempts with Paul's powerful ministry, it would be surprised that that is our takeaway. But what if we've compared Paul's pitiful attempts with God's powerful ministry? Don't forget, the Apostle Paul was not some model evangelist because he was a natural spiritual dynamo. Right? He, he wasn't the energizer bunny of evangelism, and he could just keep going no matter what happened, and he would always overcome. Paul became a model evangelist because he became a visual lesson in the power of God's grace. Undeserved, unmerited, unearned, became a representation of the gospel. Don't forget where Paul was when the Lord called him. Don't forget where Paul was headed and what he was headed to do when the Lord showed up and set him aside for his own special purposes. Paul did not become the apostle to the Gentiles because he wanted to find some cross-cultural experience. Paul was a sinner, walking in his own wisdom until the Lord appeared and set him free. 
It was Jesus Christ and Him crucified that made the difference in Paul's life and ministry. It was the Jesus that Saul of Tarsus was not looking for who struck him blind and gave him sight and sent him out with the gospel on his lips. So actually, if we want to know where real gospel ministry starts, it starts with Jesus. He's the one who lived perfectly for the pleasure of the Father. He was never swayed and never seduced by the pull of human approval the way that we all so often are. He lived without deception, without impurity, without error of any kind. He had no hidden agenda behind his pursuit of God's righteousness. That's where his gospel ministry began. And if we want to know what gospel ministry is shaped like, it's shaped like God's servant. The one who gave himself without thinking about what he could gain. Jesus Christ giving himself for the sake of his beloved. He shared himself. Not just his preaching, he shared himself. He sacrificed himself. He bled and died to take slaves of sin and make them children of God, beloved in the sight of the Father. If you want to know what gospel ministry is seeking, it is seeking to display God's glory to a watching world, just as Paul says, it is He who calls you into His kingdom and His glory. The gospel tells us that the most glorious thing about your personal evangelism is not the work that you contribute, but the Savior that you proclaim. Whether you do it well, whether you think you don't do it enough, whether you come away feeling a little bit guilty week after week, the point of this passage is not to see how well your gospel ministry measures up to Paul. The point is to see how the gospel makes your ministry possible. The point is to see and to believe what Christ can do even in you when he calls you into his kingdom and his glory. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your gospel. We confess that all of our feeble attempts to minister to one another are so many errors and faults. Thank you, Lord, that you sent Christ for us just the same, knowing full well how how far we fall short of that perfect example of his ministry to us, yet you sent him to be the savior of sinners. You send us out with this gospel joy that he should call us children of God, that we should be those who receive him and have a right to the inheritance that you give us and to the inheritance of the saints. Lord, we thank you for the gospel that you are at work proclaiming into our hearts by the personal work of your Holy Spirit. We pray that that would be the foundation. Christ's work for us would be the foundation of our ministry to one another and of our ministry in the world. Keep us, Lord, clinging to you and to your promises. Help us to do that which is pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name.